0: Whereas before, we could see where the employers were choosing to locate. Now, we're seeing where people want to be. And in a labor-scarce environment, low unemployment rate, very low working-age population growth, um, what people want matters.
1: You are listening to the Fire podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. It is
2: uh, the beginning of May. We've just had yet another bank failure over the last several days. Um, The interest rates, uh, a lot of prognosticators seem to suggest that uh, it will continue to go up, that we may have another meeting of the Fed in the next week or so. So it looks bleak. At the same time, uh, we continue to have discussions with everyone around Um, the overbuilt environment in office and question about what office is going forward. So there's a lot of work that we're having to go through as an industry and a lot of challenges. But I'd wager that I didn't list all of the storms by saying that. There's another storm that's a lot bigger, a much larger wave of impact on us that is influencing every part of the built environment, and that is demographics. And whenever I'm trying to figure out what's going on with demographics, there's really one person that I call. Um, And that's Hans Nordby. He's currently the head of analytics and research at Lionstone Investments. Um, And over the last, gosh, many decades, uh, Hans has been very patiently trying to explain to me and the rest of us in real estate what the impact of demographics and the shifting impact of demographics are on what we do. So Hans, thank you so much for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Always a pleasure to be here, Gunnar. Thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, demographics are changing. I, I hear that millennials are getting older and having kids now. What, what is happening and how is it going to impact us? Well, Gunnar, you really nailed it there. The millennials are getting older
0: and the worst kept secret in commercial real estate is millennials matter. Well, it's still true. And over the course of the 2020s, the millennials will average 36 years of age. And you know, Gunnar, as an economist, that is the safest forecast I can make. It is baked in. right? And, and as a result of that, we can tell a lot of other things. You know, what do you do when you're 36 years old? Well, you are more likely to form a family. You are more likely to have children. You are in your peak earning and spending curve years. That really picks up after the age of about 30, 32. And you're more likely to change your domicile between cities, within a city, in order to change all of these things. Your real estate needs as a result are drastically different. Your consumption patterns are drastically different. And all of these things impact, you know, our performance and expectations as real estate investors.
2: So we're not talking about a continuation of what we described as millennial housing demand 10, 15 years ago, where maybe it was about hip small spaces in hyper-urban locations. It, it seems now that we've transitioned into another phase.
0: That's exactly right, Gunnar. What we've done is is we've moved on. So in in the way way that you grow up when you hit your 30s, out of your 20s, the millennials are growing up. So in the last decade, the 10 years ending 2020, the millennials averaged 26, same math, uh, in terms of when they were born. And what do you do when you're in your 20s? You want to live in a coastal city, and walk to the bar, and meet somebody cute, and, you know, you're into those life experiences and movement, and living in a 400-square-foot studio, well, that's just fine. We're sharing a two-bedroom, that's just fine. And taxes, well, they're just a faraway thing. They don't matter that much. Um, you know, the quality of local schools, not really an issue. All of these things change pretty dramatically when you're 10 years older. And in a large way, We've seen this movie before. right? In the 70s and 80s, the parents of the millennials, the baby boomers, made these choices, similar choices. They made them earlier. People got married earlier. They were less likely to be educated. Uh, but it rhymes. And we can see some analogies. In the 70s and 80s, these were tough years for New York City and Harrisburg and Philadelphia and Akron and Cleveland because the economy was changing and people were making choices that were enabled by the real environment, things like air conditioning, things like cheap land and ready availability of housing, or lower taxes. Um, All these things made a difference then, they're making a difference now. And technology, technology enabled companies and people to move to new places in the 70s and 80s, just as the pandemic has accelerated a lot of these trends. They're not the same. But they're not that different.
2: But they're not the only ones. It's not just millennials that are shifting in terms of their usage patterns. The, the Xers, the boomers, as well as the folks that are behind the millennials seem to be changing patterns as well. How does that fit into this whole mix?
0: Well, that's definitely a thing. I mean, if we look at migration patterns, people across all age groups are moving. So we mentioned the millennials, but also um, the baby boomers and those Gen Xers, there's about five of them, you and me included, Gunnar, but not, right. not many people in that demographic. So um, they're moving. And, and let's talk about where they're moving. So at Lionstone, we think of the area benefiting from migration geographically as the hockey stick cities. So that's Seattle in the upper left-hand corner of the country, right? Denver, Salt Lake City, down into Texas, over into the Carolinas and Georgia and Tennessee and Florida. That's the hockey stick. And that's That's the cities, the urban environments, the metropolitan areas that are getting the benefits of migration. So let me me put some digital meat on those bones. If we look at those markets over the course of, say, the 2022 to 27 time period, although different forecast periods aren't that different in the 2020s, those hockey stick cities that we're tracking, those should pick up working age population growth of about 1.6% per year. It doesn't sound like much, but actually, in demographic terms, that is like third-world growth priced in U.S. dollars and and with American laws. That is a good deal. Now, in contrast, the U.S. as a whole, that 20- to 64-year-old age group is growing at about 20 basis points, 0.2% during that same time period. That is not much. That's not a lot of fuel to support absorption of multifamily space, or new home construction, or retail sales through built space, or office absorption. In contrast, those hockey stick markets actually have very good growth. And if you look at the demographic that we've been discussing, the millennials, that 30 to 44-year-old age group during that time period, well, that growth rate, according to our forecast, we do our own demographic forecast, is about 2.2%, which is even stronger And it sounds good, but but actually it's better than that. Who are these people? Well, there is some organic growth in these markets. That's better than coastal cities in general. But also, it's the type of person that gets off their butt and moves for a job, for new opportunities, for a better future. That's the type of immigration that that I believe has been benefiting this country for a long time and benefits cities that get those people. So There's a selection bias here. So while the growth rate is far above average, the actual impact is higher. And what happens between the ages of 30 and 44? We talked about some of the things, but also I want to drill down on one item, income growth. If we look at income growth in that, say the 30 to 54 year old age group, if we take that broader, if we look at that um, group, it is very impactful. Those are the years in which you get your biggest raises. Those are the years in which you're likely to spend more money on stuff. And the, the beauty of stuff is, is that it gets sold oftentimes through a building. Yes, retail sales are impactful, but, but look at the difference. In the 20 or 30-year-old age group, that's, that, where does that money go on a retail context? DoorDash, student loans, video game subscriptions, bar tabs, not a lot of that goes in a retail building. Right. Now, it, it, in contrast, Gunnar, Let's look at that 35 to 54-year-old group. What happens then? Well, you know, when you're 26, that couch may have come out of your parents' basement. Right. Yeah. And and when you're, when you're 50, you probably have two couches and you bought them new. That's right. It's just a different stage of life. And all that plastic junk that you buy when you have kids that just keeps rolling through, you know, all of these things benefit retail sales locally, not as much as it did 30 years ago due to the rise of internet retailing, but- um, increasingly it benefits that area. And if we look at the built environment, we tie this all together, the demographics, the 30 to 54-year-old age group was declining in the 10 years ending 2010. Right. Um, and uh, during that same time period was was the beginning of the advent of the um, Internet retailing. Boom. Mm-hmm. Internet retailing continues to grow. was accelerated by the pandemic. But interestingly, over the course of the last five years, absorption in, in retail strip centers has actually been pretty good as a percentage of inventory. There's no supply. And it's particularly good in these hockey stick cities. So it all ties together. Right. The demographics, the cycle of life, what happens to retail. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's definitely what we have underway in the environment. And there'll be a lot more of that in 2020s. There's
2: another quirk I find with this, with this demographic of the, of the millennials that has been evolving, and perhaps it's changed, but a lot of prognosticators and a lot of observers have observed two, two points about them that's different from their parents' generation. One, they seem to be inclined to drive less than the generations preceding them. Some of them don't even have driver's licenses or delayed getting a driver's license until they were well into their 20s or, or beyond, Uh, And secondly, because they are pairing up and having families later in life, by definition, they have and will continue to have smaller families. So you're not going to see 2.5 children, you're not going to see two children, you're more likely to see one child than perhaps in the generations preceding. How does that impact, do you think, their behavior in terms of real estate consumption? Because certainly, this is the age group that is the biggest consumer of real estate, bar none, and biggest consumer of stuff, um, and capital, and attention, and everything else. This is when we are the most active as economic engines is during that time period. How is it impacted that these are people that probably drive fewer miles and probably have fewer children?
0: Well, what you're really talking about here and I agree with everything you said, is that there's a change of these millennials versus their parents, and there's a change in terms of the impact on the built environment, what people want. We believe, and we think the data supports, that people want a mixed-use environment. You know, when you think about it, you know, what is a mixed-use environment, and, and, and why is that better? Well, if you look at what heaven or the best lifestyle looks like, it's the classic English village, and there are some real-world comps for this here in the States downtown Palo Alto, Georgetown, the Bishop's Arts District in Dallas, Bronxville, West Village in New York City, South Congress in Austin. They're mixed use, but they're not high density. These are environments that have rental and for sale housing, office, daycare, incidental retail, all in one place. And good public schools, we think increasingly that'll be important, although certainly um, it was less important the last 10 years when, when the demographics were different. So You know, These are the developments that appeal to that live, work, walk mindset, which is the millennials. They're less inclined, as you said, Gunnar, to own a car. They're less inclined to want to drive it long distances or commute in that car um, than their parents were, even if they have that car. So, um, again, it's not the same as the baby boomers, but there's a rhyme. And uh, we look at it, and we see this already happening. So we look at the performance in terms of uh, footfall in terms of occupancies or rents for mixed-use districts. And we define about 20 best-in-class mixed-use districts in in the United States. And we see premia in uh, across-the-board office, retail, multifamily, faster lease-up, higher occupancy rates. So people are voting with their feet, and people want a mixed-use environment. Uh, Heaven isn't 50 stories tall and made of concrete. It feels (laughs) a lot greener than that. It's a lot friendlier. That's what people want.
2: Right. And, you know, and, and I keep coming back to that car because it's such an expense that has only become greater. And it looks like the curve is continuing to go up in terms of expense. And one of the biggest issues people are having is affordability. So affordability of housing is more than just the, the rent or the mortgage. It's how much it costs for you to live there. And I think that's something that because it was so inexpensive for decades, people really didn't look at that. But it feels like people are looking at the cost, the personal cost, as well as the economic cost, of driving until you can afford it, um, that people are trying to figure out how to get in. And, and it's also surprisingly, when I look at new mixed-use environments, obviously you know, it's not a guaranteed success. There are a lot, of, a lot of things to solve before you have a successful mixed-use development, but they tend to outperform. It seems like having everything in one place is what people are looking for. So is that an accurate reflection on some of the drivers?
0: Oh, to be sure. Yeah, that's definitely what people want. And it's the expense, as you said, Gunnar, but it's also the issue of driving. You know, as you point out earlier, a lot of people are not seeking a driver's license until they're older. You know, 30 years ago, freedom was the car. Now, arguably, over the course of the last 10 years, freedom is your smartphone. Right. Right. So that your interaction with people and the environment is different, for better or worse. Um, and People are sensitive to, to to greenhouse gas emissions and other environmental issues, and the time the time spent driving from here to there versus actually living. Mm-hmm. So you know, a book on tape is okay. You know, actually being where you want to be is better. Right. And in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, you know, we at Lionstone have built a model uh, to calculate the difference in greenhouse gas emissions for mixed-use projects versus the average household's location in any metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this conversation with uh, local you know, government entities or regulators. One thing that we're up against is I see in this location that if we, if we allow this much higher density uh, development, you know, even with its additional greenery and, and amenities, et cetera, we're going to see more traffic at that street corner than we have this week, Right. even if you know if it's already an existing retail center or office building. And so we have to handle that. And one of the things we address, Gunnar, is greenhouse gas emissions. So um, clearly, when you're living, working, playing in one location, you don't need to drive. Right. And um, there's a good chance uh, that there's you're walking to work. There's a percentage of people at these mixed use developments that are walking to work or are commuting a much closer distance or taking advantage of local transportation amenities that aren't available if you're living in, in the first cornfield that's available for development in the right. metropolitan area. Right. So there are a lot of quantifiable benefits that you can demonstrate to all your stakeholders to show, yes, there might be some more uh, emissions and traffic and headache at this intersection, but for... Um, this township or this metropolitan area as a whole, it's a much better deal mm-hmm. in terms of the total impact on the environment.
2: And it's nothing new. I mean, this is, to your point, it's the English village of, of, of yore. It's, it, this is how we developed until, say, you know, I don't know, the middle of the 20th century, that everything was close by. Um, and it seems like we've decided that that 75-year experiment is over. It's time for us to go back uh, to something that we know perhaps works. But it's it's not... Easy, it seems to me. I mean, I know they outperform, and you know, a lot of them, and, and we can go into detail on that, but I'd love to kind of look at the, you know, the execution risk, if you will. What is it, you know, you know, Lionstone certainly is known for doing mixed use development, but you know, it's very easy to, to, to miss on this one, too. It's a very difficult kind of project to put together. What's standing in the way? What is, what is the execution risk? Of, of mixed use?
0: Really, mixed use is scarce, especially well-done mixed use, because it's not easy. It requires a wide-ranging team of experts that are, that are interestingly almost never in the same company. So the industry grew up in silos with individual product specialists, programmatic equity for investors and managers, debt built specifically around property types, and historically, and up until fairly very recently, a mixed-use project was a little harder and a little bit more expensive to finance because people didn't want it. Right. And and let me tell you if you tell me what you get paid to do, I got a pretty good idea of what you do. You tell me what the fences are to finance things, I got a pretty good idea what what real estate investors won't do. Right. So so there's so many barriers to this. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, this was the way things were done for so long. What happened after World War II, we created single use districts and we developed the infrastructure for that. Developers, builders, our thinking, our financing, everything was pointed against mixed-use development. It wasn't the way things were done here. So as a percentage of the total environment, this is a very small percent of, of the total environment, despite the fact that it's really what people want. And it's not just financial or zoning barriers in the way. It's managerial and development expertise and redevelopment expertise. Right.
2: Um, and, and the banks have to understand what it is. They, you know, it, it's it's almost as if they don't know what this beast is and how to underwrite it and how to think about it in terms of risk and return. You know, the, Brian Klinsick over at, uh, at LaSalle made, I thought, a really good point recently when he compared uh, urban areas that were very diverse, very mixed use, compared to those that weren't, that were more mono use or single use. Um, in terms of their recovery from COVID, how fast the recovery was. And he looked at places, say, like the West End of London, which, you know, what, what COVID? It never happened compared to Canary Wharf, which is more of a, a single-use district office which is still dead. And we see the same thing repeated in the United States when you think about downtowns like Washington, D.C. or Chicago that are mostly single-use compared to New York, which has had, I think, a a better recovery. It's not 100% there, but certainly a better recovery because it's such a diverse location where everything is walkable. Is that message getting through into our kind of ecosystem of understanding about how mixed-use works and why? Well, certainly I think people are feeling that new is better. That's
0: one thing you hear a lot of. Right. And that is it's better in office. Part of this is that people are looking for that silver lining in office, and sometimes it's hard to find. Right. Right. And, and it is definitely true. Newer is better. That's been our experience as well. But even better is mixed use. And, and we see it across the board. So, you know, I, I, I saw saw Brian's presentation on that. It was very good um, with his comparisons in London. If we take that comparison here to the States and we look at the twenty best-in-class mixed-use dr- districts that, that we track here, if we look at those districts year-over-year year, change in footfall through December of last year, that was up about 3% on average. And these centers generally held up pretty well, You know, like the West End of London. They didn't fall hard. These are growing faster. This is where people want to be. Mm-hmm. If you look at the zip codes in which these best-in-class districts are located that footfall is up about 50 basis points. So it's up a little. If we look at the markets in which these developments uh, are located, that total activity and footfall is down one and a half percent. This is a function of uh, the post-pandemic environment where quite often you don't need to go anywhere. You can stay in your bedroom. You can stay local. So really, whereas before we could see where the employers were choosing to locate, places like Canary Wharf, now we're seeing where people want to be. And in a labor-scarce environment, low unemployment rate, very low working-age population growth, um, what people want matters. And so for investors to go to where people want, maybe even a little more than what um, office uh, owners or the people running um, large employers want, I think that's, that's the direction of the future.
2: And it seems to, to a certain extent this may, on a go-forward basis, help us understand what is actual placemaking. So that's a term that's thrown around rather haphazardly <laughs> to a certain extent to describe, oh, we've programmed some things to happen on the street. But placemaking really is about building that... That, that urban community, that mixed-use community uh, that people need there, but not easy to do and, and certainly risky to pull off in some ways. Well, well that's
0: exactly right. So let's, let's delve into that a little bit more. In creating that environment, which is difficult, we believe a team approach is key. So you need to pull in disparate talent, which is very uncommon. Very few firms do it. And there's a saying, the best specialist attorney in every field probably works at a law firm, not as in-house corporate counsel. You have to go outside to get the best in class. So one of the ways that we look at this is ground plane activation. So the bottom 30 feet of a site and 30 feet out from the buildings. Or, I want to be inclusive, we are on the AFR podcast, the bottom 9.1 meters, <laughs> right? This, this is where people live. Right. And so this is a good example of the team approach. So So usually we work with a combination of retail and food and beverage consultants to work with the best urban architects to create both the look and feel of the place and something that will bring in the best local restaurateurs, the best specialist operations. Um, There is a place for national chains in these best-in-class districts, yes, but the best-in-class mixed-use projects that we found that, that really have the best rents and the best Um, Best take-up, they have the best local chefs and operators. And likewise, they have the best local market fitness operators, yoga or whatever it is. So bring in one of the top restaurateurs in town. This isn't signing Smith & Walensky. Now, there's nothing against Smith & Walensky. I love cream spinach. (laughs) But... But, you know, dealing with the top tour is like working with an artist. It's a lot of work, and it requires something that's non-formulaic. And that non-formulaic goes for the people who are walking, you know, the streetscapes, you know, the green areas, et cetera, here. So you may have Starbucks in your development. But if it's mostly national chains, it's probably not one of these best-in-class developments. Um, that's not being snide. It's being realistic about what it right. takes to get the economics to work and to create the rents and the, the, the take-up that's involved.
2: That's what people are looking for. They're looking for something that's non-formulaic, that maybe is a little bit more human-scaled, local-scaled, right. and you hear the term genuine or genuine mm-hmm. qualities kind of thrown about as being a priority as people are thinking about locality. If it looks the same as every other place everywhere else, that perhaps that's less attractive.
0: Well, that's exactly right. So if we look at what makes great mixed-use developments, there's usually either a natural amenity you know, it could be a park, it could be a beach, it could be uh, a fantastic view, or a man-made of many, which is substantial, mm-hmm. not incidental. Um, and you need to take advantage of that in a way that is non-formulaic, that, that makes people feel comfortable, it makes people want to walk the site, and it ties into adjoining areas. So quite oftentimes, you know, and this is quite common in the industry, certainly we do it, we're trying to tie into the local neighborhood in a way that reaches out, that doesn't yeah. shut out. That, right. that, and that makes it feel much more organic.
2: Well, it, it also seems to me that we, we also often are in amenity wars. And I'm sure we're going to go through a whole new cycle of amenity wars as we as we recover from the issues that we have today. And we throw everything up at the wall and we see what sticks. And some of it is worth spending money on. Some of it isn't. I, I keep wondering about dog washes in apartment buildings, if that's really <coughs> getting a return. But it, it might be. I, certainly, a lot of people have dogs. but i wonder if the greatest amenity in a mixed use project is other people we're in an environment where one of our biggest health care issues right now is loneliness and mental health it's almost as if people want to be able to see people on the street that that's part of what people are looking for and some of the projects you've described to me uh, that you guys have been involved with it seems that you've put Other people, almost in the spotlight in terms of the the street life, that 30 feet or that nine meters of street life, seems to be a big part of what the amenity package actually is.
0: That's true. And I think that's true across the board for the best-in-class mixed-use environments. And it's so different than the 70s and 80s, where the gold standard was, I got in a car, I drove to a building, I parked in the parking garage, I went upstairs, and I left. Interestingly, if we look at the buildings which are most difficult to repurpose in the environment or which have the poorest demand or occupancy rates today, they're from the 80s, right? which, which are sort of the quintessential uh, story. They're deep. They are single-use. They're tall. They're not friendly. They're not human. When we think of uh, the office part of mixed-use development, we define that as we want to be human scale, right? which, which we define as 20 stories or less. Less than twenty years old, because a lot of the product that's older just you know isn't to standards. And importantly, for many tenants today, if you take you know the managing partner of PWC, if she's looking at a lease, she has to sign something that's fully ESG aware. Right. You know, it doesn't almost matter what the lease rate is if it isn't, because she can't do a lease there. So to be a successful environment and to command the best tenants. Uh, almost by definition, that building's less than 20 years old. And as we go into this tougher economic environment where tougher underwriting um, and continued pressure on the office market, there is sadly an ocean of buildings which are probably unleasable as office buildings. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, that's definitely true. If we look at that 20 stories or less, 20 years old or less, lead certified, fully compliant, probably fit well, which is another you know, live work walk uh, maxim and in a mixed-use environment, and preferably in a city that has good in migration. When we look at the world and we look at opportunities you know, to serve the market like this, we believe top-down you want to be in markets that have working-age population growth because that powers every aspect of your project. Right. Yet there'll absolutely be successful projects in, in metropolitan New York City or L.A., but they don't have the demographics for true growth. They do have some good fundamentals for cannibalization, but you know, working age population growth over the 2020 looks like a tough slog. Right. And it's different from these other places that have many new families moving in, seeking new experiences. Um, and there's some room for fun with numbers with that. Let's let's look at that. Right. So, um, this is an underserved market. There are about 72 million millennials. If 15% of them pick up sticks, and move to the the hockey stick markets, that's about 10 million people. I think I'm being conservative. Call that five million households. They're gonna need housing. And most American cities still have a shortage of housing. If 20% of those people have incomes that can support uh, market rate redevelopment or development, I'm trying to be conservative here, that's a million required housing units that are what we're describing, that modern English village. And if each mixed-use English village has 1,000 houses, condos, townhouses, rentals, single family, that means we need 1,000 English villages to be built or expanded over the 2020s. And and that may sound prima facie like it's a big number. Right. How many apartment units were built for 27, 28-year-old millennials over the past decade? And that market's going away. Right. So, so this is the direction of things. So it's not only um, what people want today, but there's, there's a lot of gas in the tank um, to make a lot more people happy with this type of environment.
2: And it, it also gives me reason or pause when we think about how much we built for the, for the millennials in their 20s, what happens to that product, who's going in. Because to a certain extent, the boomers that are looking for apartments, they aren't looking for a 400-square-foot Studio, they're, they're looking for something that's a little bit more expansive than that, even though they're downsizing. Um, that I, I wonder what's going to happen to those portfolios that have been somewhat bulletproof over the last 10 years um, in those sectors. Is there enough of the Gen Z to, to take over that demand? I was looking at
0: one metropolitan area a couple of years ago, and I looked at all the development from 2010 to about 2020 in one CBD, and I looked at the floor plans, and 78% of the construction, and there was a lot in that 10-year time period, was a studio or a one-bedroom. And so um, to your point, we didn't build the built environment to suit this older generation, because at the older age, averaging 36, you're making more money, you have different physical needs. Even if you want to be downtown, those assets don't exist. Right now, one of the things you could say is, "Okay, well, we'll just convert office buildings." That's there'll be some of that to yeah. be sure, yeah. to be sure, and, and and it's not just zoning that's standing in the way. There's some of that. Mostly, it's economics, and we'll see a lot of this sort itself out. So, um, if you look at, for example, New York City in Midtown, where the demand for the most part isn't, um, and a lot of these buildings that you know are are, are deep that I've described, there are Owners there, Durst's, Rudin's, Trump's, you know, I would suspect that they've, oh, I know these, a lot of those buildings have been owned since inception. They were built by these, these, these uh, groups. Um, they were depreciated. If they give them back to the bank, they've got a tax recapture that is so painful, they just can't do it. Right. What do they have to do? They must lease it. The only viable solution is residential. Are they built for that? No. Are they going to be great apartments? Probably not. But I would bet money gets done by the end of this decade, you know, probably without any support from the, new York, the city of New York. Right. So that's going to be a vast new supply of urban housing um, that's going to change the face. It's probably going to be oriented towards um, that younger Gen Z, you know, crowd because it'll be cheap, and it'll probably drive an urban renaissance by 2030, 2032.
2: And we have a tendency to think that in order for housing to be viable, it has to be great. When when you think about what affordable housing has historically kind of naturally been, when it isn't built for that purpose, it's been stuff that's not ideal. And think about how we redeveloped southern part of Manhattan, which was non-ideal for housing. 19th century industrial warehouse. We made it ideal over time, but for a long period of time, it was really substandard housing. I mean, it was, you know, maybe you have plumbing down the hall. Maybe. You know, it was difficult to make it work, and yet the demand was so great. The supply was substandard in terms of the amounts. So people essentially moved in. And I keep wondering, too, how many—and Jim Costello has written some things about this as well—how many kind of— illegal residential are we going to see in some of this B and C class office um, as, gee, I just can't lease this stuff. I'll look the other way while you sleep there at night kind of thing, which is what happened in in lower Manhattan. My biggest concern is that conversion took more than 50 years. Well,
0: I think that's exactly right. I don't think it takes that long this time, but I don't see this happening in the next five years. And so there's going to be a lot more pain Until we get there. I think New York and San Francisco will be even better cities, be more important cities in 10, 15 years than they are today. You include San Francisco in in that. You include San Francisco, which right
2: now everyone's like, you know, describing it in apocalyptic terms, but you see a turnaround over the next five to 10 years.
0: Well, I would anticipate certainly over 10. You know, as we always say about buildings, it's got great bones, right? Right. I mean, the weather is awesome. It's located in Napa County and lots of other fun places. Right. Um, And um, it's a beautiful place. There's some wonderful and and high-powered educational institutions, and there's a culture of of risk-taking and development. It's welcoming of, of immigrants from outside of the country and within the country. So there's so much going for it like New York City in the 70s, they have some civil issues to iron out. Right, And those civil issues matter in and of themselves and also for employers' choices and for individuals' choices to live there and do business there. And New York City figured that out, did a great job, Uh, and by the late 90s was well underway to resurgence, and so was San Francisco. But to your point, it took a while. And so I think that that's going to happen. In my opinion, that's going to take... you know, we won't have good news to say in a material basis
2: in those cities for at least four or five years. What's going to be different that will make it faster this time than it was before?
0: Many things move faster than they used to. And capital is more nimble than it has been in the past. Um, so, you know, these things together, people understanding more, transfer of information, entrepreneurial capital, um, I think these drivers will eventually enable recovery in the long-term in these markets, um, and demographics, um, and prices. If, um, you know, as you pointed out with Soho in New York, when, when, when you went in this direction, that's exactly the neighborhood I was thinking of. It's a great example. Right. Because now it's some of the finest, most desirable real estate in the world. Right. Um, and so these places, I think, in the long run can take advantage of that. But what had to happen to Soho? It had to be broken first. Right. Um, when it went to uh, these residential uses that you described, it wasn't fully leased. No, it wasn't even a healthy environment. No, so it needs to break before it can get better. Breaking—I don't think breaking looks like um, a abandoned steel mill in northern Indiana. It's not that bad, right? But it's tougher than it is today.
2: So well, I, and and one of the fundamental precepts of any kind of fundamental change is that it has to break first. Right, We're not going to change until we absolutely have to. So there are changes that have been long time coming perhaps in places like San Francisco and, and even New York that I think has done better through this cycle. But still, there have been some issues that have not been addressed because we didn't have to address them. Right, Like it wasn't crisis time yet. It wasn't so broken. But I I do wonder if we're seeing a natural cycle that cities tend to go through, um, sometimes it's more severe than others, where what we were doing before just doesn't work anymore, and you see a dip. And at that point, then it becomes more affordable for people to take new risks and to do things in a different way than they did before. So I I agree with you. And, And certainly, when you think about capital, we still have a preponderance of international capital, not just domestic, that is looking to invest still now. So the money is there. Uh, Maybe it wasn't there in the early 70s to do that. There wasn't that kind of faith in the future of these good bones and where it could go. but maybe it will be faster. I'm I'm going to I'm going to hold on to that to uh, to cheer me up in, in the dark nights of the soul that I think we're all going to go through over the next several years. Well, we could probably talk uh, for a long time, and, and we probably will. But maybe we'll do it over a, a cup of coffee uh, uh, next door. In the meantime, I'm going to have to bring this episode to a close. So I, I want to thank you. We've been speaking with Hans Nordby, who's the head of analytics and research at Lion Stone Investments. Thank you for joining me on the A Fire Podcast. Thank
0: you for having me, on.
1: you have been listening to the AFIRE Podcast, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitches, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. So AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.